which will go take us up until Easter, I think. I'm looking at Romans 12, chapters 12 to 16. And this morning, I know we were there at the first couple of verses last Sunday morning with our focus Sunday. What's our focus for this year? Oh, we'll do it again. Transforming people. So we're now going to be working our way through this section of God's Word, Romans 12 to 16, with a particular filter of what is there that God says to us through this portion of his Word that we are to be changed into, how are we to become. So we're going to read this morning from chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So we'll go over some of the ground we went over last week, maybe slightly differently, and then have... I hope, an insight into Paul's thinking, into the Holy Spirit's thinking. I'm reading from the NIV. Um, The Apostle Paul writes, God says to us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For each of us has one body with many members and these Members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently and if it is to show mercy do it cheerfully amen that's god's word to us thanks marty but it's going to blow my notes all over the place let's pray heavenly father it's good for us to pause yet again and to remind ourselves of what a great privilege it is for us to have your word and we give you thanks for it we have the wonderful privilege of having your spirit indwelling us and we give you thanks for him and we pray now that the holy spirit might be pleased to speak through me to us to each of us that we might not only understand this portion of your word but understand what you require of us what you desire for each of us as we follow jesus so lord grant us both the privilege of understanding but also grant to us the motivation, the empowering to be obedient to it. We ask this in Jesus' name and, of course, for his honour. And everyone said, Amen. Um, The Apostle Paul has been arguing all the way through Romans, as I think we have said on numerous occasions, outlining to the people of Rome, a city that he had not visited but that he wanted to visit, outlining to them his clear understanding of what the gospel was. And Romans is a very um, articulate, clearly argued book and um, obviously one of the favourites of many and probably one of the longest, which is why it's first 
in the New Testament letters of Paul. First 11 chapters, he outlines that very clearly with some sidetracks and applications to it. When he comes to chapter 12, as he often does in, all, in the way he writes, first you get a theological, doctrinal understanding, a, a basis, a foundation, and then on the basis of that comes application or implications. And so we're in that section of the letter where it's, Paul's now getting down to, okay, what does all of this mean for us? And so he says, I therefore urge you, brothers and sisters, male and female, all of us, in view of what God has done for us, in view of God's mercy, be committed to him. These first two verses, that, uh, these first eight verses break into about three sorts of comfortable sections. Verses one and two, about verses three to five and six to eight. Of course, there's one flowing argument through them, but it'll be helpful to have that sliced up in your minds. <clears throat> this first section, verses one and two, is about our response, about our commitment to God. The basis of that commitment, verse 1, is God's mercy, the gospel. The character of that commitment, we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, it's to be total. And in fact, the NIV does it, and many versions do, but I prefer the, um, the older versions who translated, uh, this is your true and proper worship. I prefer the translation, and it doesn't matter, um, that this is your reasonable even the translation logical this is your logical response this is to be consistent if you have understood God's mercy and that you are the recipient of it, of it then to be consistent with that you would make a full total commitment to him chicken and pig were walking along the footpath and they saw a sign that says bacon and eggs for breakfast and the pig said to the chicken, for you, for that for you just requires a contribution. For me, it's total commitment. <laughs> the demands of this total commitment that we are to give to Jesus is in verse 2. It's both positive and negative. Don't conform to the world, but be transformed, that word, by the renewing of your mind. And then the effects of the commitment, then you'll know and understand what God's will is. You'll discern it, you'll approve it. And you'll experience to be good and pleasing and perfect for the way you live. It was Isaac Watts who said in the hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Got it right. Love so amazing, demands total commitment. This means, of course, too, that the more that I understand of what God has done for me, as I grow in my understanding of God's mercy, my understanding of theology, of doctrine, of biblical truth, as I read the Bible and I understand it more and more, the more I understand, the more my commitment should be. As I develop in my understanding of God, his person and all that he has done, then I should be responding increasingly as well. Which means, of course, that I'll be more committed when I'm older if I'm growing in my understanding, than I was when I was younger. But sadly, my observation is, I wonder if yours is the same, that often in the church it's the other way around, isn't it? We're passionate and fully committed when we're young and then, I don't know, life happens and we cool down and we slow down and we're still committed but not as passionate as we was when we were younger. Whereas the implication of this text is, no, no, the, the reverse because God has been merciful, as you grow in your understanding of it, therefore you'll grow in your response to it. 
We should be increasingly more and more committed to him. Better, stronger living sacrifices to him. And of course, this applies to everybody. It doesn't just apply for pastors and missionaries and full-time Christian workers. It doesn't apply just for church leaders. It applies across the board. Business owners, housewives, young people, older people, everybody. There is a dichotomy in the Christian minds for some where they think that people like pastors or missionaries um, or full-time you know, college lecturers, they, they, they're required to be 100% committed. For the layperson, uh, well, you get off at 75% or maybe less. There are some people who actually think like that. Well, this passage is saying no to that. It's all of us. If you follow Jesus, then it's 100%. It's a living sacrifice, a presentation of everything that you have. It's all of you for whole of life, all of the time, every part. My thoughts, my goals, my hopes, my ambitions, my words, my deeds, every part of me, dedicated and committed to serving him. So how's that going? That's what God requires of us and wants and will be testing us on. And in fact, Paul says that this is the logical, this is the true and proper worship. This is the reasonable response for any thinking person to give as they understand what God has done. It's illogical. It is inconsistent for people to say, Lord, you can have everything to say the words, but then not to do them, not to follow through. That's illogical. It's compromise. It's false. It's hypocritical. I'll give you everything, Jesus. And it's also illogical to do this. I'll give you everything, Jesus, except that. Whatever that is for you. I'll give you everything. I'll do anything except this. That's also illogical and inadequate. Are you doing that in your life? Are you saying, Lord, I'll serve you as best I can, but there are these areas of my life that I'm just not prepared to hand over to you. I don't trust you with them. I'm not giving that up be it a pleasure, be it a possession, be it a relationship, be it a whatever. Everything. Living sacrifice. Hand it over to him. Here's an exercise for you to do this afternoon. Um, after you've had lunch, uh, find some alone time, get a pad and pen, and start doing a thorough inventory on what you own and possess. Write everything down. Got a house, one house. Got a bedroom in the house. In fact, I have three bedrooms in the house. Got a bed in the house, got clothes in the bedroom, got cupboards, shoes, handbags. Rhonda's got handbags. <clears throat> Ties, suits, yada yada. Write everything down. Got one kitchen. All of the cooking implements and the knives and everything. And the food. I got a fridge and I got food in the fridge. I got a pantry and I got food in the pantry. Write it all down. And you'll be surprised with how much stuff you've got. And then say, Lord, this is all yours. He owns it. You don't. You think you do, but you don't. He's given it to you to have possession of for you to use. For your enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6. For your health and growth. But also as a wise steward that you can minister to others. Lord, this is all yours. 
one day, someday, I will die. And what will I take with me? Not even this. I don't even take my body. It stays. I go. So now Jesus is saying, in this age, until that point, everything surrendered to him. Should hold these things very loosely and lightly in our hands. Which explains my friend Michael, who lives in New South Wales, <coughs> who is one of my accountability people. Got broken into one time, newly married, got broken into, a lot of stuff stolen. His response? He prayed for the people who stole the stuff. It's just stuff. You can replace stuff. He wasn't phased by it, wasn't disturbed by it. He did everything right, you know, he reported it to the police, he, yada, 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 he put the security in place for his wife who was a bit scared about it. But his attitude was not one of um, mourning and grieving, great loss. I don't think I'm at that level yet. I think if someone got into my house and stole some stuff, I'd be a bit upset. <clears throat> Hang on. That means I haven't handed it over. That means I'm still hanging on to it. And there are things that I'm hanging on to, I'm sure. And so I do the exercise as well. Lord, an inventory, everything. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. And I will say, whatever you want me to say or be or do, that's what this passage is asking us to do. Paul then goes on and talks about the demands of this, is that uh, in those two commands, one is negative, one is positive. Don't conform to the age any longer. The world we live in, don't conform to it. Don't copy it. You'll be tempted to and you'll be under pressure to, but Paul says, say no to it. And the command is also positive but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't conform to this age. This age, generally speaking, is an age which lives without God. It lives independent of God. That's what sin does, makes us fiercely independent. It seeks to live its life ignoring God or rebelling against him. And they come up with adages and sayings and philosophies. And you'll know some of them. You may even be influenced by them most of us have been and sometimes are being do others before they do you don't get even get everything that's what donald trump's wife ivana i think her name was said of him when she divorced him and he's now running for anyway don't get even get everything you have the right to be happy don't worry about cheating or doing shortcuts everybody does it uh, it's not wrong unless you get caught. Look out for number one. Life is all about money or possessions or prestige or positions. All this stuff is worldliness. All this stuff is the philosophy of the world. Now, having said that, not everything in the world is bad, is it? Say no. There are many good things out there to enjoy. Just be wise and careful in the choices that you make. Be discerning. Don't conform to the pattern of the world. It's not abandon the world and have nothing more to do with it and live in a Christian bubble until Jesus comes. It doesn't say that. 
It says, be in the world, be an influence of the world, but don't be influenced by the world. That's the standard, that's the goal, that's the intention of what God wants for us. Which, of course, also means don't be afraid to be different, to stand up and to be the person God wants you to be. You can't do that in your own strength. You can only do it if you've done what verse 1 is, which is responded to God's mercy and presented your entire self to him, on fully surrendered to him. Now he will be living in you by his spirit and he will be empowering you, enabling you to be different. What happens if you've made a dumb choice? What happens if you have been influenced by, tempted by, and you've given in, under peer pressure from others to give in and to do it the way the world does? Well, if you stumble, acknowledge it, repent, change your mind, say, this was a bad choice, and now I'm going to get out of it. I'm not going to do it anymore. Sometimes, of course, you may find yourself in a situation where you can't do that, that you've got yourself into a situation you can't get out of. Well, then all you can do is live in the light of God's mercy and ask for his, not only forgiveness, but also for his empowering as you work through the consequences of some bad choices that you may have made. Positively, it means be transformed. I didn't tell you last week, but this is the same word that is used of the Lord Jesus when he goes up on the mountain, and our Bible calls it where he was transfigured. He was literally transformed. The reality of what he was on the inside, the essence of his deity, started to radiate from him. That's what it means for us. To be transformed as the reality of Christ within us is now going to radiate out. It's going to become obvious. We will demonstrate the reality of Jesus in us. It's not just something we do and can copy. It's the Holy Spirit working in us and us cooperating with him, as I said last week. The effect of all of this is... That you will know what God's will is, that you'll be able to discern it. Would you like to know what God wants you to do? Many people do. Many people struggle with it. It begins here. Understand the gospel. Submit and commit entirely to him. First thing. You want to know what God's will is? Then be prepared to do whatever God's will is before he told you. Blank check. Lord, tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it. But if it's no hard attitude or full commitment to him, then God won't tell you. Why should he? If you're not going to do it, why should he tell you what it is? But if you do submit to him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Don't conform to the world. Be transformed. Walk in obedience to him. Grow through those stages and circles of life. The will of God will become clear for you. You'll know it through his word. You'll know it in your heart. You'll know it by his spirit. You'll have a strong sense of discerning, testing and approving. This is what God made me for. This is what I want to do. This is how I will honour and please God. And you'll discover that it is good, that it is pleasing and that it's just right. It's perfect for you. It was Alexander McLaren, the preacher back in the days of Spurgeon, who said, to know beyond doubt what God wants me to do and then actually doing it is heaven on earth. For those of you who know God's will and that you've done it, I'm sure that was your experience. Certainly it's mine. It's heaven on earth. You have a joy in the sense of the presence and the closeness of God. The Apostle Paul then goes on to say, because we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds, there's a new way for us to think. And he now expands this in verses 3 to 8. Three to five is a paragraph that goes together and he basically says we need to start thinking differently about ourselves, 
and about those in the body. We need to start thinking differently about our relationships with the church. Paul says, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, what grace? Not salvation grace he's talking about, but this is either a gift or it's the office. He's calling on his life. Because of the wisdom, the insight that God has given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Don't think too much of yourself. <clears throat> he actually says, don't think more highly of yourself. It certainly is the universal tendency of people because of sin to be self-focused, that we think about ourselves, and it manifests itself classically in two broad ways. There's the classical, the arrogant braggart who goes around telling you how good he is or she is because of all their successes and what they've done and so on. They're a pain in the neck, aren't they? Oh, they're not. The opposite is far more subtle, but it's the same attitude. This is the self-deprecating person who says oh woe is me I didn't do very good but they do it with motivation so that you will say to them no that's not true you are good you're very good they do it to receive praise it's very subtle Martin Lloyd-Jones a preacher now gone home to be with the Lord one day was going to the train station carrying suitcases and another man out of his congregation said, oh, Dr. Jones, you're a much more important person than I am. I'm just a lowly, you know, street sweeper or something compared to you in the kingdom. Let me carry your bags. I'm a nobody. You are really important. You know what he did? Lloyd-Jones says, you know, you're right. Hmm. <laughs> that'll test your mettle, won't you? Won't it? You, you better be careful. That's the universal tendency. And the, Paul, and the Apostle Paul says, the renewing of your mind means you'll change the way that you think about yourself. Now, notice this. I know time's going to kill me today. He doesn't say that we are not to think of ourselves. We are and we should. And we should have a healthy self-awareness and evaluation. He doesn't say don't think of yourself. He doesn't say don't think of yourself highly. You can think of yourself highly and you can think of yourself positively and particularly if you think of yourself theologically, who you are. I'm a son of God, I'm a child of the king, I have an inheritance. I have all of these spiritual blessings and riches, that's who I am. I'm born again, there's a room in heaven reserved for me. Not because of what I've done, because of what he done. But I can think of myself highly or well off because of Jesus. What the Apostle Paul says is, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Have a true and accurate assessment of who you are in Christ. Be sensible, be correct, realistic in your evaluation. And he says to do that according to the faith that God has given to each one of you. He does not mean, how much faith have you got? And compare that to how much faith have you got and to work out some sort of pecking order. He's not talking about that sort of faith. I think if you change the word, and it should be, it could be translated this way, it certainly means this. If you change the word from measure, I think it is. Uh, it hasn't got it in the NIV. In accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you, measured, apportioned. If you change the, if the idea behind that word is really the standard. According to the standard of the faith that God has given each of you. Paul is thinking theologically. He's not talking about personal faith. He's talking about the faith 
He's ultimately, of course, talking about comparing yourself to Jesus. But it's understanding who you are because of what Jesus has done, that you have been born again and therefore changed. It's what God has done in me, and I am aware of it. That's how you to think of yourself. For the grace given to me, everyone, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. You're not super spiritual. You're no more precious to God than to any other child of God. We're all equal. But to think according to the faith that God has given to each one of us. He then goes on to illustrate that verse 4. For just as each one of us has a body, we all have a body. And in that body, there are all different members and organs and parts. Yep. And those members don't all have the same function. Correct. So, he says, verse 5, in Christ, though we are many, we are one body. And each bit, each part, each member belongs to the body, belongs to all of the others. It's a very simple illustration that Paul loves and he uses it again and again and again in his letter. The implication is that though we are many and different, because we come from different backgrounds, but we are united. Think of yourself that way. Think of those people sitting beside you, if they know and follow Jesus, think of them as they're part of the body. They're part of what I am a part of. And I am to think of them in that way. That we are to treat each other with a sense of unity, accepting our diversity, but there is also this commitment to one another. The more you read it and get the Apostle Paul's argument, you will realise what he's saying is this. That when you respond to the mercies of God and commit yourself personally, individually, fully to him, that has another consequence. You are also likewise incorporated into now a community of God's people. I cannot be a lone ranger Christian and grow to maturity. Can't do it. You need the church. You need the community of God's people. You need the body of Christ. That's what he's arguing. And then he goes on again to talk about um, our differences. And he says one of the things where we are different is that we have different gifts. Now let me take a couple of very quick minutes and then make a statement to conclude. We all have gifts. We all know that. This list that Paul gives has seven gifts in it and it's not exhaustive. There are eight different lists in the New Testament and they're all different. Our spiritual gifts are given to us by God for him, for his honour and for his glory. The gifts are given to me so that I can serve in the body, so that I can help this organisation, this community, this group of people be what God wants us to be so that he gets glorified and he gets honoured. Which means if I'm not doing my bit, you're not doing your bit, then we're being affected, which is affecting the consequence, the glory and the honour of him. We all have different gifts. Um, the gifts are given, as I said, to serve one another. We have to develop these gifts. And the last thing I want to say about this before I race through them is, each, not all of them, but most of the gifts that the New Testament talks about has a corresponding command for believers. I'll say that again. Each one, most of the gifts the New Testament talks about the gift of being an evangelist, has a corresponding command for believers. We are to be evangelists. You might have the gift of hospitality. We are to be hospitable. You might have the gift of mercy. We are to be merciful, and so on and so on and so on. For each one of the gifts, for most of them, there is a corresponding command 
in the New Testament for all of us to do. In other words, we can't say, I don't have to be a hospital because I don't have that gift. I don't have to be an evangelist because I don't have that gift. Get it? We do the commands, but God has equipped and gifted some of us to be very good at doing some of those things, both to assist us, but also to demonstrate, to train as well as to demonstrate the reality of him in us. We personally don't have all of the gifts, but we corporately have many of the different gifts. How do you discover your gift? Have a go. There are questionnaires you can do, and that can be helpful, but the best way to do it is trial and error. What do you think your gift might be? Have a guess. I don't know. Well, have a guess. Guess two or three, and then trial it. Except martyrdom. Don't try that one. And then if you find there is personal satisfaction in the exercising of it, and if you also find confirmation from others that you were good at it, that God spoke to you through it, so there is a confirmation from others and there is a personal satisfaction will come together in you. That'll be a confirmation that this is the area or this is the gift or gifts that you have. In view of all God has done for us, the logical, most sensible, reasonable thing to do is total commitment to him. The presentation of our bodies is a living sacrifice. Not conforming to the pressures of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thinking differently, not just about ourselves, but about one another. And that we are now not just lone followers, lone living sacrifices, we are part of a body, part of a community that God wants us connected with very closely and accountable to where we are not just a part of attending, but we're actually participating in, that we have a gift that we are to discover and to develop and to deploy, to use in the life of the body. How do you compare? This is God's will. This is what God wants for us. And he awaits your response. Um, Because of time, and I've gone way over, we are just going to close in prayer, so... Let's pray together.